Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognize market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. As I was thinking about today's show and today's guest and how I would introduce senior pastor, pastor, <laughs> excuse me, Kevin Oder from Cannon Ridge Church, uh, I was actually stuck and I'm still kind of stuck. So I'll give it the best shot that I can. Uh, you'll talk about more, you know, your, your, your role, your title, what you do and all that. I want to introduce you just as I've observed you over the last few years that we've known each other. And I feel like there's two sides to the spectrum as with most things. So I, I know you from our Vistage group, which is a, a executive organization. We meet once a month. And on the one side, there's, there's Kevin, the guy's guy. You're funny. You razz people always in a light, light spirited way. Um, yeah. Casual, just fun guy. You want to hang out with Kevin. On the other side, when uh, at, at Vistage, when someone says, I have an issue I need to talk about, there's, there's the profound side of you. There's the, you're usually last to give your advice or feedback or recommendation, and it usually comes uh, with a lot of depth. And I feel like if wisdom itself needed advice, they would come to Kevin Oder. Hmm. That's my introduction. Well, I am 60. Okay. So I'll take that. The uh, friend of mine who was a rabbi, uh, actually a friend shared a book that a rabbi wrote uh, that talked about the different decades of a man's life. And uh, when you were zero to 12, you were just creational man, it was called. From 12 to 30, it was sexual man. That's where you get married and have kids and settle down. 30 to 40 is your warrior years. Uh, 40 to 50 are your wounded warrior years. And 50 to 60 is generational man. That's where you're considering passing things on to the, the generation behind you. And then the 60s plus, which in our culture says you're done. In a Jewish culture, it's not the case. In a Jewish culture, there's respect and admiration for the 60-year-old plus. And it's, they literally call it the wisdom of the white-haired ones. And uh, I do have white hair for the hair that I do have. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you do learn a lesson or two along the way. So you hope that you can uh, think things through and try to give some of it in a way that is a uh, receivable form. And uh, so I'll take that as a compliment. So thanks. And thank you for being here and for doing this. And right there in the opening, everyone can see why I wanted you on the show and, and how profound things are with you or, or can be. Uh, I, I at some point want to circle back to this wounded warrior. Is that between 30 and 40? Yeah. All right. That's where I'm at right now. Uh -huh. So you'll tell me later what that means. Um, this show is called takeaways and it's about my takeaways from people. Like I mentioned, there are some specific things that we've outlined that will, that you and I will talk about. Uh, you have a way with words, as everyone just heard. One of them that you've defined once before that kind of stuck with me was the word grace. 
It doesn't sound very interesting right out of the gate, but hopefully we can understand what grace means to you and how you define it. Another thing that I've learned from you over the years is about grief. A lot of things about grief. And we'll talk about what is a good cry, uh, but, but more things around grief and, and how significant and, and important it is. Uh, you never realize how much you can learn about business from a pastor, but some of the best business lessons that I've learned that have really stuck with me, I've learned from you. One of them is the concept of Joe the Six Pack or Joe Six Pack. We'll talk about that. And uh, there's so much more. Another thing, if we have time to get to, is using intentional language, which was uh, there's a story around that and how I came to learn what that means from a sermon that you gave, which included me. So that's, uh, those are the takeaways that we'll cover. But before we get into all of that, spend a few minutes, tell us who you are, tell us what you do. Uh, my name's Kevin Oder, and I'm, my dad was a pastor, and so I was raised in the pastor's home, and everybody wonders, are you going to be like your dad when you grow up? And the answer is no, even though my dad was a great guy. He was the same on Monday as he was on Tuesday, and uh, same on, on Monday as he was on Sunday, meaning that he wasn't a fake. He was the real deal. And my brother and I both ended up going into ministry as our careers because uh, our dad gave his life to the church, and we thought uh, it was worthy of our lives, too. So all that to be said, I was raised in a pastor's home, but I didn't want to be a pastor uh, because I wanted to be a coach and a teacher coming out of high school on a football scholarship, and I wanted to play, who knows, sports beyond college, which I got to college and soon learned that I wasn't going to do that. But it got me a free education, a uh, great education, and uh, met my wife and uh, started a career. So uh, it, was a, it was a good start. Uh, I, I was going to be a professor after I was going to be a, a coach and a teacher, but I kept working at local churches, and I really found out that I enjoyed that. So at the age of 25, I decided to make the vocational choice to be a pastor. And uh, even then, I was a youth minister, not a real pastor. Uh, working with the kids in the church, uh, it didn't feel like I was submitting to being a pastor. I was uh, okay a leader because you're working with the friend. kids, and it still kids. satisfies the coaching, teaching yeah, kind of bug. And, and I loved all of that, and I could see the progress in kids. Uh, but then, at the age of um, 35, moved out here to Vegas with my buddy. To this help. is when you're a wounded warrior. Yeah, I was a wounded warrior. Moved out with my buddy to start this church in, in Las Vegas called Canyon Ridge. Oh, you came here together? Came here together. Okay. And he was the best communicator I knew, and I was his wingman. And uh, he stayed three years and then went back to Kentucky, and uh, it, it turned out that I ended up being the lead pastor after that. And that was a, the toughest year of my life, that year, the when he left and I was trying to figure out what we were going to do. How does that work? How, who calls you to come be a, to start a church, or did you just decide— Las Vegas is the place that we're going to start a church. There was um, a, a church in town called Central that was at a Desert Inn in Mojave at the time. And they were landlocked. They had about seven acres, and they were running about 2,400 people a weekend. And wow. they, they needed to relocate. And uh, they were going to move away from the northwest side of town. This is in the 90s when the northwest was exploding. So they said, let's plant a church on purpose. And usually churches get started, sadly, with some kind of fight, and they divide. And because we're, we're more right than the other side is in some way. 
And two major donors get upset with each other, and one of them says, I'm taking my money over here. Bingo. From that to I like this pastor more than that pastor, okay. or I like that music leader more than that music leader, or I like that. Any any reasons churches can find uh, to blow up, and that's very sad, and it hurts people, and that's the worst thing about it. In this case, it was a pregnant church. It was a church that needed to have a baby, and they knew it. And so they called uh, my buddy out to be on staff there for eight months before we they gave birth. How did they even find him in Kentucky? Uh, he went to a Bible college in Illinois with Gene Apple, who was the senior pastor at Central. So okay. Gene knew about him. And then in the course of trying to figure out how to bring out for this plant, uh, called Mike. And Mike was my buddy, and he asked me to come out and help him. And so the adventure, the great adventure of planning a church on the fastest growing side of the fastest growing city in the country for people who didn't want to go to church at the very gates of hell itself. Oh, yeah. Was, as it, it, what it, year was this? Uh, 1993. Okay. So it, 25 years ago, we just celebrated our 25th anniversary. Mazel tov. And uh, thank you very much. And it was, it has been the great adventure. It's been a great ride. So 25 years. Yep. So you came here with Mike. What happened next? Um, we uh, Central was very generous in planting us. Uh, they encouraged anybody that wanted to go to this new church to go. And we met at the Y uh, across from Meadows Walt Mall for our first Sunday. And we had 725 people our first Sunday. We uh, set up and tore down every week. We put kids in racquetball courts for the kids' classes. It was chaos, and it was a bunch of fun. And then we actually were the first church to be in a school in the state of Nevada because when we started, Nevada had, for some reason, a statewide policy that the buildings rested on Sunday. And it took a Supreme That's interesting. Yeah, it took a U.S. Supreme Court ruling for equal access for all nonprofits to ripple its way to Nevada to open up uh, the all public buildings to nonprofits on Sunday as well. And we were the first church to ask if we could get in the school. And so Summerall Memorial High School was where we went next because we were first in line. So we were the first church in a rented facility of a school on Sunday back in 1994. And we were there for four more years while we bought land and built our first building. So for five years, we were church in a truck set up and tear down. And then we got 30 acres at Lone Mountain and Jones on the Northwest side and and build our first building. And that's where you're at now? That's where we're at now. And we have uh, 40 acres there, and we have uh, built five buildings, and we built five buildings. And we have two uh, satellite sites uh, that are in high schools. One's in a high school, one's in a middle school. Uh, one's uh, in, And one is called Centennial Hills in that region. One's called Providence, and it's in that region. And uh, so we have two churches that's set up and tear down every Sunday are two sites, and then we have our Lone Mountain campus. And you're known as a mega church in the in church world as they label churches. Uh, it used to be any church over a thousand was a mega church, and now they're saying any church over two thousand a weekend in attendance is a mega church. And our church averages around sixty six to sixty eight hundred a weekend. So every weekend at Cannon Ridge, there's sixty six or sixty eight hundred people. That come for services? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. How long do your services last? Um, hour and 10 minutes. Sometimes an hour and eight, mostly an hour and 12 to 15. Because we have multiple services, so it's important okay. to leave enough time in between to turn a service. So that's a lot of people. Yep. 
How many people are members of your church? Don't know, uh, because it's not our main thing. Uh, we didn't really come to create church members. Okay. We came to That's help. That's how the synagogues run. Yeah. We came to help people get connected to God in a personal relationship with him. And so in that regard, that's our main mission. And sometimes church membership helps people identify with the church and engage in a way that helps their relationship. And so there's a positive to it, but it's not the main thing. Okay. Uh, we're kind of creeping into some elements of the, of the topics that we'll talk about in the takeaways section. But before we jump into that, because this show is called Takeaways and it's because people who've influenced me that, that I want to speak with and, and explore with, I want to ask you, what one thing or event or person in your life has defined or shaped you the most? It's a great question. I did a life plan, which is this Patterson process. It's a business guy that wrote a book and uh, he was kind of a contemporary with Peter Drucker. Anyway, in that whole uh, process of life planning, uh, there were 22 life-changing events in my life map of different turning points, so to speak. So there isn't necessarily one critical one, but the way I want to answer your question is kind of like I started uh, and say the most influential person in my life was my dad uh, because he was so solid. And as I look back and reflect on my life, uh, it's not so much that he had this curriculum or this master plan of, I want to teach you this, son. It was just who he was as a, as a man. And uh, he was a great example. He uh, showed me how to love one woman for his whole marriage, his whole life. That's my mom. Uh, he showed me how to work hard, uh, how to have integrity, how he was a servant leader, which is, uh, you know, in Jim Collins' book, The Level Five Leader is the leader that when you say Walgreens, you know about Walgreens, you don't know about the CEO. The C, it's not about the CEO. Uh, Dad led churches in a way that it wasn't about him. And, uh, and all those things that he modeled greatly impacted me about what, what life's really about, to have a good, good marriage, to have good family, to prioritize family time, um, and to devote yourself to helping people get better and get connected to God. And so it's been, I've lived my life that way and I'm grateful for it. It's been a great life. Usually when you ask people about someone that's influenced them and it is their parents, they lead with work ethic. You led with, taught you how to love one woman. <laughs> I believe in marriage and uh, very strongly and it's very hard. And my wife and I have a great marriage, but it's been very hard. And I, that, I don't think that's an, um, how do I say it? I, that's not an accident. In my view, I think God's pretty wise that he knows <laughs> a marriage vow is called a vow. It's not called an intention or a promise or a hope it works out. It's so what's a, the difference? It's a vow. A vow is I will do this, period, as opposed to I'll do it if you do your part. That's a contract. I'll uphold my side if you uphold your side. It's not a contract. It's a covenant using a good Jewish word. Mm -hmm. uh, the covenant is, I will do this, period. Regardless. Regardless of anything. It's a vow. And as many times as you look at that person that you love and you stood in front of somebody and said, I'm going to marry you, and you're going, I don't get you right now. What you're saying to me is the most hurtful thing that I've ever heard. Or what I just said to you hurt you worse than anybody's ever hurt you. How do we recover from that? How do we learn to forgive? 
How do we learn to be for each other? How do we uh, come together from two very opposite poles on how to parent our kids, how to discipline our kids, mm-hmm. how to what values we're passing on to our kids? All of those things, uh, when you have to, <laughs> when you have to forgive the person that just says something that hurt you so badly, why do I have to forgive them? Because I uh, here's here's a classic story I've told our church, so it's it's public knowledge. But there was this one time Ginger and I had uh, intense fellowship. My wife's Ginger. We we had intense fellowship, which is our way of making of sanitizing. We had a pretty good fight and intense fellowship. And we got to a point where it was just going south. And I did a very passively aggressive thing. I didn't know it was at the time, but I did it uh, because I was escalating and I knew that I was going to say something very bad or do something very bad. So I exited the room. Uh, I was in winter here in Vegas in January, and I walked out the front door in my socks. It was cold, and I'm walking down the street and by myself with no plan. I just turned around and walked mm-hmm. down the room to de-escalate the situation, which was a good move, but it was a passive-aggressive move, which wasn't a good move because that left my wife feeling hurt. And I'm walking about a block or two away, and I'm going, where am I going? You know, Eventually, the adrenaline calmed down, and the cognitive kicked in, and it's like, where am I going? I have no plan. I have no plan to go anywhere. I don't have keys to the car. Uh, my And eventually the next block, it was my life is back in that house. I don't want to go back to that house, but my life is back in that mm-hmm. house. And so eventually I said, I'm going to have to go back and apologize. Uh, why do I always have to apologize first? And I do as a pastor, believe it or not, have a relationship with God. And it was like there was this voice that said, no, I forgave you first. Go forgive her. And it was like, oh. Wait, say say that again? It it was like God said to me in a way, you know, when I said, well, if I'm going back in that house, I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness first. I'm always asking for forgiveness Why can't she ask first? Why can't she ask for forgiveness first? And and it, like as I was doing this self talk mm-hmm. uh, cycle, uh, it was like there was this voice that said, "No, no, 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 you didn't go first. I did." And when so I God forgave you first, therefore you can go forgive Ginger, and therefore I will go forgive her. And as I walked in and I said, "I'm I'm sorry," and then I knew when I said that I was going to get more heat because I heard her as I exited, and sure enough, I got more heat. But we worked through it. But that's that's a small example of a vow where my life is in that house, my kids are in that house, my wife is in that house, I have to go back in that house and I have to say I'm sorry. And uh, boy, that that grows you up. Marriage does that to you. It gives you the opportunity to work through your selfishness and your pride, to be humbled and to be pliable and to learn, just to learn to be a better man. And uh, I think God was smart when he created marriage. So I'm for it. I watched my dad and mom have a good marriage. And uh, it was a found. It is the foundation of our home. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. Uh, everybody gets divorced. I mean, the the stats are high. It's not everybody. About forty percent of people. They say all. Oh, does that come down? Yeah, everybody thinks it's half, and it's not. Uh, the the stats are off uh, because they just figure it wrong statistically. It's it's in the forty to forty two percent range. So a lot of marriages do make it, um, but it it is a great uh, laboratory of character development where you are forced to deal with your junk and decide to rise above it. And uh, I'm grateful, grateful. I want to go back to your life plan. Okay. 
because first of all, that's interesting that you did a life plan. So I want to understand a little bit more what that is. But also when you talked about it, you said there were 22 turning points in your life. So when I think about life plan intuitively, it's a look forward. But if there are 22 turning points, is that a look backwards? Mm -hmm. So talk what... Part Talk of, about the process. Part of the exercise is sharing your life story with the facilitator that's doing your life plan. And as a trained listener, they'll note certain transitions, certain events that before the event you were like this, but after the event there was a change, a change where you shifted. And uh, sometimes those life events are things that happen to you meaning your parents got in a wreck and you, uh, one of your siblings had an injury that is still not healed. Okay, so that's a life-altering or life-changing event for you mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways. Another example would be uh, a choice that you make where I chose to go to William & Mary and accept a football scholarship there. That turned out to be a life-changing event because of what it opened up for me and all the opportunities at William & Mary. And it was away from the Midwest. It was 16 hours away from my house. And so I left home, literally, to go to this foreign land called Virginia, and a whole new world opened up for me that I would have never experienced if I had stayed at a nice college in the Midwest. What opened up for you besides meeting your wife? I met my wife there. Um, several things. Uh, ended up double majoring in a liberal arts college in a history and religion departments. So I was a history religion double major. I didn't intend that to happen. And that opened up a whole area of study that I hadn't intended to do, which was a study of the major world religions. And that was fascinating to me. And to this day, I'm grateful for that experience. Um, just being in the East Coast as opposed to the Midwest. And William & Mary was located, uh, people from Long Island and New York in Boston <laughs> would come down to William & Mary and people from Charleston, South Carolina would come up to William & Mary, people from Richmond, Virginia. It was this composite of dialects from all over, honestly, the whole eastern sea seaboard that came to William & Mary. And they were, and William & Mary is a tough academic school to get into, so they were sharp people, meaning they were not, um, they were there to study, they were there to advance careers, and they were bright. It was a great exposure to a whole bunch of people that I never would have met in the, in the Midwest. And so it was a life-changing experience. Um, uh, I, I got involved in a fraternity at William & Mary. You did? I, I Which one? The Lambda Chi Alpha. Okay. And I wouldn't have done that, but at William & Mary, there, I didn't join freshman year because I'd heard, I'd seen it, you know, Animal House and everybody, had the stereotype, and I was a Christian, so I was like, why would I go to a fraternity? They do All they do is non-Christian stuff. But this one fraternity was known for accepting strong individuals, and I saw my friends join freshman year. So I didn't even rush, but sophomore year they gave me a bid, and so I joined as a sophomore. And, boy, that was a great experience because when my fraternity brothers were sober, they were great people. And I was often the designated driver, and uh, that was a great experience. And, and that's where I got introduced to drugs in the sense of I, I saw bongs and I watched guys pick out seeds from their pot. And all but you stuff. never inhaled? Never inhaled. Almost did. There were, th there were three other guys, <laughs> four of us who went to spring break with, and somebody brought along some joints uh, because all four of us had never smoked pot, and we almost did, but we didn't. Um, but it was, but but my brothers were my brothers, and and I got to know good guys 
who were living lifestyles that I, w- I wasn't living, but at the same time, they're good people. And that was good for me. So it opened up doors of opportunity. Educationally, I got involved in president's aid. I was a president's aide. So I got to meet with the muckety mucks and, and that was a great experience. It was just a great experience. What caused you to want to do a life plan? Um, I had heard about, uh, the Patterson process through a pastor in California, a guy named Rick Warren, who's a pretty substantial pastor. And he had done this life plan when he was younger. And then about 20 years ago, 20 years later, after I had heard about it, a friend of mine got involved in the Patterson process and got trained to be a life planner. And as he did one and a few other guys had done one, I saw, I saw the fruit of it. And when I was going on a sabbatical, which is something that our church allows its pastors to do after six years of continual service, uh, we get a three-month break where we refresh and renew and heal and restore. It's great. In my sabbatical, I I went and had a life plan done, and it was very, very helpful. Uh, The answers in the room is the is the one of the phrases that the Patterson process tells you. So it's not like there's a guru who sits down and says, this is what your life should be. It's a series of questions and discovering your past, uh, pulling out your values. It's um, uh, Patterson went over, was sent by Reagan over to Japan to, to analyze what was going on in their production uh, where they would use uh, when Toyota and, was known for producing such great cars and the ones in America were falling apart. What is it about their process that makes their stuff better? And he talked about the difference. He discovered, Mr. Patterson discovered the difference between the uh, Japanese model and the, or the Asian model and the American model. The Western model is we kind of go straight at a problem and bulldoze ahead until we figure it out. But the Japanese would circle the problem. They would keep circling it and keep circling it until they saw it from every angle and every side. And then they would start to figure it out that way. And so the Patterson process is a series of questions and exercises where you keep circling, in this case, circling your life, looking at it from this angle and this angle and this angle and this angle and this angle. And you start to see a better picture of who you are and a, and a clearer understanding because of the composite that comes from all of those exercises. And uh, it was very, very helpful. And one of the exercises was life mapping, going through the map of your life. You were, where, you, where were you born, your nuclear family, your key accomplishments in middle school and high school, what happened to college in those years, your marriage, your mm. kids, first jobs, first friendships, um, other interests. And you, you go back and you identify your key people that influence you, coaches or teachers or professors or friends, uh, key events from tragedies to triumphs and what marked you and how those celebrate you. Hmm. And as you, you – know, the key uh, low spots of your life where you were broken and in uh, the most meaningful times of your life and why they were so meaningful. And you just ask those questions and as you start to write them on this big board and you're, you start to see the pattern of your life and you're, and all of a sudden you're going, Oh, that's why that's a big deal to me now. It goes back to that event. Oh, that's why I have this value in my life. It goes back to that person and you can see the contribution of your current person and who and how each one of those things contributed to you. That helps you when you're in the middle of, so what am I going to be and where should I go and what, emphasis should be my next thing. And it turned into an exercise where, uh, for lack of uh, any other word, I discovered my sweet spot. 
if if for me, if I could do this, I, it would be the most productive thing I could be about doing. And it, it was based upon my values. And my values often come about my life experience. It's based upon my abilities and what I can and can't do and an honest assessment of that. So based on my values and my abilities and my life experiences and my passions, my heart of what really does fire me up and what gets my motor running, when you put all of those things together, what is your sweet spot? And to walk out of that exercise with that clarified was really fun. Uh, and I think a lot of people would be highly desirous of figuring that out. It cost a few thousand dollars. I was going to start. So yeah. I have a lot of questions around this. First of all, yeah. where do you do this? Where is this room with the with the board all over the walls? <laughs> uh, each facilitator can do it in a variety of places. Uh, so you just Google guy, you Google Patterson process and find your life plan. Life, life plan. plan. There's a book that he wrote that you can actually do your own life plan by, by working through the book. So you can save a few thousand dollars just by doing it yourself. But by having a trained facilitator lead you through it, it just helps the process. How, how long does more. it take? Two days. Now, what does it cost? You said a couple grand? Yeah, about three to four grand. Yeah. What is there a deliverable to give you like a report at the end? Yeah. You want to see it? Sure. <laughs> Kevin has his iPad, which he carries everywhere that I've seen him. Uh, it's just a nice device that carries a lot of stuff that where, where was yours? Was it here or did you have to go somewhere? I went to Colorado Springs. That's where your friend was. Yeah. That's where the guy was that I chose to. What age would you recommend somebody do a life plan? Any age is okay, but the more life that you have, the, um, the more you've lived, the more I think clearer your current pieces you're just less clear a decade if i did this two decades that makes ago, sense it's just I when did you do yours uh three years ago okay and is it one thing that they said was your sweet spot yeah or is it the you know if you did any of these four or five things you would you would have a fulfilled life so this is the deliverable so it's a, a big report. And it's a PDF file with life several plan. pages, like 25 pages. Okay. Six stages of a man's life. I took you through that. So the Is that where you got it from? Uh -huh. Okay. Uh -huh. A book that this guy had, had read that he used it as a template. Got it. Four Helpfuls is an exercise. Turning points. You can see my turning points. That's my map of key events and the up and down emotional impact of each one of those. Is events. there one that you can share so we get a sense of what yeah, kind of turning absolutely. points is on there? Uh, for me, uh, one happened when I was 16, when I was in high school, because uh, the town I grew up in, football was king in Michigan. It was a town of about 18,000 people in Michigan. Football was a big deal, and I was good at it, and I was a quarterback, and I was capped in my senior year, and everything had pointed to my senior year. I was dating the homecoming queen. Of course you were. I, I was getting recruited by Michigan and Michigan State for football. I made recruiting trips to both places. And uh, the first game of my senior year, we were ahead 21-14 to 14 at halftime, played Traverse City, a big team up north. And they came back and beat us 41-21 to 21 the second half. And I uh, missed a few tackles. And so the Monday after that loss – practice was pretty brutal. And I tackled my best friend, Marty Capone, and I broke my right hand. I put my, my hand in, hit his helmet. And like that, 
my senior football season was over. Was this uh, like an overcompensation from the game? No, it was uh, just it was an bad, accident. Bad that I got my hand in, involved in the in the helmet, and it was an accident. Okay, uh, but the timing of it for me was um, my football season was over. So in that moment, my life was over. Because my life to that point was football, and it was Got being it. a senior and dating the homecoming queen, being and the king playing of the, professionally, of the school. possibly. Well, I didn't know about professionally, but my life—the most important thing in my life was gone, and I—I—I uh, I, I learned. Uh, my my girlfriend was a great girl, but she didn't understand. My parents were great parents; they didn't understand. And I went out and parked this car, my parents' car, underneath this tree in the middle of the. Of the countryside and around the in Michigan, around the town where I grew up, and uh, th- that's where my faith became bedrock. It was personal instead of theoretical. Hmm. It wasn't just the story of faith. It wasn't just the details of the Bible stories. It became real that night, where my faith was a rock that held me in that storm, and so it was a turning point in my life. How uh, it. Um, it, it made the relationship with God personal as opposed to theoretical. He, I, I felt like he got me. It was an emotional experience. I was very tearful. And in that moment, I felt like God understood me at a deeper level that I, I instead of God being far off and I can't approach him because he's so good and I'm so bad, it was like God came near and he understood. And I, so that's as clear as I can say it. He just understood. From that point on, it was like he was my friend as opposed to this untouchable other. And um, that was big for me. So wait, so you're you're upset. My life is over. My hand's broken. Yeah, my life's over. I would think that you would, at that point, curse God and say, why did you do this to me? How did it go the other way and God became your friend? Because it, I don't know. That's a great question because I, I pastor all kinds of people that shake their fist at God. And I tell them it's okay to. Because it's not, God's a big boy, he can take it. Uh, the Bible says it's not uh, a sin to be angry. It just says in your anger, don't sin. And a whole lot of people sin in their anger and they end up in prison or jail. It's not a sin to be angry. It's just not a sin don't, to be angry. In your don't anger, anger. In your anger, don't sin. In your anger, don't sin. Yeah, so if, if you're mad at your wife, it's okay. Just don't punch her and don't punch the wall and don't curse her out. I mean, don't do sinful things. Don't walk out of the house in don't your socks. Walk, walk, house walk all socks. those blocks away. <laughs> it's okay to be angry at your kids, but don't sin against them. And uh, the, the tragedy of our culture is too many people sin when they're angry. And and the anger is just hurt. There's, it's an you're ex- angry because you're hurt about you're something. Hurt. And anger is not the first emotion. It's the second emotion. Hurt is the first emotion that's expressed in anger. And um, and so it's not wrong to be angry at God. That night, for some reason, I wasn't mad at God. I was hurt, and I and I my it was all. What's my life going to be? This is everything I wanted. It's just all gone. It, I was wallowing in the loss, as opposed to uh, shaking a fist. And uh, God came to you and yep. put His arm around you and said, "It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay." And it, and it was because it long because of that turning point. I didn't go to Michigan or Michigan State. I ended up through a oh. unique circumstances going to William & Mary. When I went to William & Mary, I met my wife, and and I would trade her, her for the world. And God also, had a plan. And I also got involved in this little church that I wouldn't have been a pastor, but I started serving in the church 
uh, gave me an opportunity for some reason that stuck and generated that potential. I got a double major in religion and history, which I wouldn't have done. And that had gave my future potential. And um, it just, and I had so much exposure out there that I wouldn't have ever had staying in the Midwest. So I, I look back on it and it was the bit, it was the best break of my life. <laughs> ah. um, you just went to Israel. Yes. Uh, it's funny. That second time. The second time. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a pastor, you speak like a rabbi sometimes. You know a lot about Judaism, a lot more than I do. In, I don't even say a lot of ways, just period. You know a lot more about my religion than I do. How was your trip? What was the purpose what were your takeaways? Um, because so much of the Bible happened in the Holy Land. I mean, the, the setting of all the stories is there. And so there's a curiosity for all of us in America who grow up reading the Bible stories of what it was like. And gosh, I grew up in a Sunday school classroom as a kid learning the Bible stories, looking at a map of Israel. I mean, I knew where the Sea of Galilee was and where the Dead Sea was and the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. I just knew that map where Jerusalem was, where Bethlehem was, all of all of those stories. And I'd seen that map forever. And it was one of those, someday I'd like to go kind of thing. And as you become an adult, you you realize you can do that. There's, it's not illegal. It's not against the law. It's an open country. You just have to put it on your calendar and save up your money and get it done. And so 10 years ago, I took my first group, and it was a great experience. And I just went to see the lay of the land and relied upon uh, the tour guide that the company that we went through uh, hired for us. And he was a a native Israeli. He was a military career guy who retired and became a tour guide. So I got to see the Holy Land through the lens of a Jewish military uh, perspective, which was fascinating. He knew his Bible and he got us around to the places that everybody goes and sees. Um, this year it was a little different because there was a Palestinian Christian that was our tour guide. How about that? Exactly. And we spent the first three nights in Bethlehem, which is the West Bank, on the other side of the wall of separation. And so that was a wild experience just to come face to face. Is with- it noted? Is it like distinct and noticeable this wall of separation or you just kind of drive Absolutely. by okay it's it's, uh, it's unmistakable and to there's see clearly that side and, and yes, this side the bethlehem side the government the local government is inept and so trash pickup is something that they haven't figured out yet so there's just more litter and trash on the bethlehem side whereas the jerusalem side is much more pristine first class city uh, so there's a lot of Things like that that you mm-hmm. notice just in the current conflict. But we go there not for the study of, of the current conflict. Of politics. Uh, and the politics yeah. of the day, uh, but for the holy sites that are there where the Bible stories happen. And as a Christian, we believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we study the Old Testament, which is what we share in common with the Hebrew-Jewish faith. And, um, and so the Temple Mount is a big deal to us, just like it is to any Jewish person. And, uh, a lot of the Old Testament events, uh, did you go to the Western Wall? Yeah, I went to the Western Wall. Do you feel anything when you're there? Do you feel like it's a significant place? I'm going to, I'm going to, um, get a little spiritual on you here, but, uh, but it has a point. Um, when I went 10 years ago, I was sorry. I have, I tend to be sarcastic, as no. you know. And, uh, so 
uh, in my sarcasm 10 years ago, I just, I just got on the bus with my group and I said, I, I want to see a burning bush. I just want to see a burning bush. And as we know, in the history of the world, there's only been one burning bush, supposedly, and it was with Moses in the desert. At when least there one was, that spoke anyway. With, that was that God was in and spoke to Moses and uh, it was a defining moment and Moses took off his shoes because he was, or sandals because he was on holy ground and all of that. And there's only been one of those, even though we all want a burning bush or some kind of an experience with God that is supernatural and miraculous in that kind of significant way. And so I got on the bus saying, I want a burning bush. And and as we went to a certain section, uh, the wilderness between uh, Jerusalem and Jericho, uh, we went to a Bedouin camp and rode some camels, and it was kind of fun. But there was nobody around. And so I had the bus driver pull off and there was this bush. And so I went up to it and I lit it on fire and took off my shoes and took a picture of my <laughs> of my feet by this bush that was burning in the wilderness as a total joke. I mean, I, but that's how silly I am. And um, that was 10 years ago. In this trip with this group, I used that as an illustration to say, honestly, anytime you encounter God, it's a burning bush. It's a sacred time. And for the story I told earlier about being under a tree in the middle of the, of the Michigan cornfields with my mm. parents' car, that was a burning bush moment for me where I met God. And meeting God in the Holy Land or meeting the God, God in Las Vegas, burning bushes are available here too because it's not confined to just one land or one piece of the land. It's uh, you and God. God's everywhere. God's spirit. And so uh, we can encounter him here. And obviously the synagogues of Las Vegas uh, offer moments for people as they do feasts or remembrances of their heritage to have spiritual moments as they say prayers, as they bar, bar mitzvah their kids, as they do things here. It's not the holy land, but it is holy ground when you connect with God. And that's what Moses was told, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. So uh, all that to be said, for us to visit the land, uh, it made the Bible come alive is the point. When we read Bible stories now, we see the Sea of Galilee. When we read about it, we see the mountains, the Mount Olive, Mount of Olives. We see the wilderness. We see the Jordan River. And and it 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 comes alive instead of a map on a wall in a Sunday school classroom. It becomes, oh, I've seen it, I've tasted it, I've smelled it, I, I get it. And uh, that's the overall benefit of going to the Holy Land for people of faith as they make these pilgrimages. It's pretty cool. Well, when did you get back? Uh, last Tuesday. Do you still jet lagged? Nope. Uh, by Friday, I slept through the night instead of waking up in the middle of the night. So it took me three days. Good questions. Thank you. Yeah. Let, me, let me throw in some more questions. Okay. You... um very quickly being around you, I learned that you have a way of making simple words extremely meaningful. And one of those words is grace. It's seemingly simple. It's not much that I've ever thought about except for as maybe you would describe a ballerina. But how do you define grace and how is it applicable in our lives? Um, grace is a mainstream word. I mean, everybody knows it. Everybody uses it. Um, in some circles, grace is what you say at a meal when you want to say a prayer, uh, blessing in some way, who's going to say grace. 
Uh, I don't know where that came from, but that just became a phrase and people use it. Um, grace and, and being graceful. Uh, gosh, when I was a kid, uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers won three or four Super Bowls and Len Swan was this receiver, the first guy that I had ever heard take ballet, the first football player that I ever heard take ballet lessons to help him be more graceful as a receiver. Hmm. And some of the cage, the circus catches that he made in Super Bowls and such were miraculous. They were circus catches. And, and I believe his gracefulness in being able to handle his body in a way to catch a football in an incredible way was part of being graceful. Um, certainly ballerinas are graceful. Other, other, um, we compliment a host who's a graceful or a gracious host. Being gracious mm-hmm. is also a complimentary word. But there, when I got to seminary and studied the doctrine of grace, it was actually a class. It changed my perspective forever. And I didn't really understand grace. Grace in its core means gift. And the Greek word for grace is charis. And there is a bunch of charas and charis, different takeoffs of the word charis in the English language, but it really goes back to grace. And the, and the root word for, for gift is charismata. And so to be gifted, you hmm. have grace in the core of it. The, the, great, the core word for gift is grace. And it really does mean gift. And in general, the forgiveness that God gives us for our sins is a gift it's it's not something we earn or deserve. It's something that God gives us a gift of. We are gifted with grace. And that is life. I mean, that is really a game changer if we get it. I, I do not deserve to be forgiven for the way that I speak in ways that hurt people, in the way that I act and as I hurt people, when I disappoint people, when I'm less than who I want to be. Who, what right do I have to earn my forgiveness? But I accept the, the forgiveness that God offers me as a gift of grace. And as I do, then there's this next move. You've done things to me that are unacceptable. Well, I've done things to God that are unacceptable. And God has forgiven me, so can I forgive you? Uh, you've done some... I've done some things that are unforgivable to God, but you've done some things that are unforgivable to me. So who am I to not forgive you if I receive the forgiveness from God? It's like if I receive forgiveness and love, you've done some things that make you unlovable. Oh, I've done some things that make me unlovable to God. Who am I not to love you? You're God serves me just like I am. Why can't I serve you? No, if, you got to meet my conditions before I'll serve you. So when I serve you and love you and forgive you, just and accept you just as you are, I'm reflecting how God loves and serves and forgives and accepts me just as I am. So this this deal of grace is I receive grace. I'm compelled to give grace, and that's a doctrine. It's a doctrine. A doctrine of grace. The doctrine of grace. And as you were talking, it seems to me like it, it's there's a couple of things. There was the um, the story you told about when you and your wife got in a fight. Yeah. But who are you to not forgive? Not her. forgive her. This mm-hmm. is the same kind of that is an same, application same of thing. grace. And then it applies though from person to person, mm-hmm. not just husband to wife, 
um, man or woman to God, person to person. So the other thing that I reflected on is like, this is kind of what makes the world go round. It uh, is a life-giving value. It's a life-giving principle. Now I'm going to share one other thing with you, and uh, this may help you understand Christianity a little bit uh, from a different angle. But God is a God of justice, and God, and he's a God of love. And when you think of the God of the Old Testament, which one do you think of the most? Justice. Yes, and he's known for that in the Old Testament. Um, I passed the test? Yes, uh, <laughs> but I was, I was really curious because I didn't know what your answer was going to be. But the steadfast love of the Lord never fails. That's a psalm. Uh, his love endures forever. That's another psalm, and you can read those. God's love is in the Old Testament, but he's not known for it there. In the New Testament is where God's love is seen, and Jesus talked a lot about love. And so people say, I like the God of the New Testament more than the God of the Old Testament. But it's the same God. God didn't change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a God of justice, and he's God of love. Now, the cross that Jesus was crucified on had both elements there. One was justice, that God punished the sins of the world by Jesus dying for the sins of the world, and he was innocent. He took on the sins of the world on our behalf. So God was just, but he was the God of love in that he provided the sacrifice, meaning he sent his son to take the sacrifice. And so God so loved the world, he sent his only son to die for us. Instead of smiting the world. Instead of smiting the world. And God did not just say, sin is no big deal. Go ahead. No, anybody can sin. There's no justice. God goes, no, there's justice. I'm a God of justice. So Hitler's going to get what he deserves. I'm a God of justice. Oh, well, do I get what I deserve? No. Jesus is going to take it as a gift of sacrifice, as a gift of grace. He'll take the gift. So I don't get what I deserve. So I can give you what I, what you don't deserve. So it's uh, the justice idea is very powerful in grace. It's not just everybody's gracious and everybody forgives everybody and everybody gets off the hook because here's, here's where it plays out. Um, in Romans 13, the new Testament book, uh, the endorsement of our government being a servant of God, the government is to administer justice. You personally are to administer grace. The government is not to administer grace. The government's not supposed to turn the other cheek. You want to kill our people? Sure, go ahead. No, we will defend the rights of innocent people. As a matter of fact, we'll have the sword or guns to defend innocent people. But you and me personally, I got to turn the other cheek and be gracious to you. So there, the place, mm. the place for grace is in interpersonal relationships. The place for justice is for the government to arrest people and try people and convict people and protect the rights of innocent people. So that grace is not just this wimpy idea that, oh, everybody forgives everybody. It's like, no, we're supposed to forgive the person that offends us for our own freedom. But God is a God of justice, and it, he says, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And he does that through the government. Got it. So it, I don't want to wimpy, wimpify or whatever grace it is a very strong idea that has – it's a robust power that when I say I want to be gracious to you, it, it means that I – somebody took my penalty, somebody paid the price for me, and I am now free to forgive you. But if somebody attacks my wife or my kids, I'm going to defend them because that's justice. 
See how that works? It's, yep. weird. it's weird. You don't just say, go ahead and attack everybody, but I'm going to forgive you as the attacker. I don't know if I'd be forgiving if I was, <laughs> if I was defending an attacker against my wife and my kids, but that's a great example of you taking a very simple word. It took a while. It, no, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's one of the things that I've learned from you is that there's, there's depth in this world and in anything that we do. And that is just one small example. Another one. And I will say this. Yeah. You, you are gracious. I have seen you be gracious. I've listened to you be gracious. And being and what does it mean to be gracious? It's when you give a gift. It, because it's a gift. I, I can choose to be uh, critical. I can choose to be enforcing of something or judgmental or condemning. But instead, I will choose to be gracious first and let them off the hook or to say they must be having a bad day or there's always another side to the story or to say something where you extend grace instead of extending justice. But there's a time for justice, even in, uh, in HR issues, mm -hmm. in, in employee relationships, when somebody violates a value of your firm or of your place of business, you can be gracious. But, but you can also be just. You can also be just. And when you are just, you're teaching a lesson because God then is not just because he just wants to be mean. It, there's a, there's strength in justice. There is goodness in justice. And, and as a matter of fact, there's holiness in justice and justice comes from God's holiness or his righteousness, not just from his anger. And that's very important to know that justice does not mean God's just mad. What is he, what's he mad at by the way? Sin. Sin is when somebody hurts somebody or violates something that's good. So God hates that when people sin against each other. So he has justice to pay the price for your sin. So it's it's like I'm mad at bad things. I'm mad at what happened in Florida in the shootings. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's not good. It makes me mad. That's a righteous anger as opposed to just anger. Interesting. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. but Yeah, it does. Good. I mean, it's – it's uh a complex thing to not just, I think, receive in a single sitting, but certainly to to think about and explore further. Can I put you on the spot and ask you when it was that you saw me be gracious? What, what was the example? Um, in general, I'm going to say this, uh, emotional intelligence, which is something that has been studied in the marketplace and workplace and there are books and tests that you can take on emotional intelligence. People that are emotionally intelligent, you, intelligent usually don't lead with uh, justice. They usually lead with grace because they understand that people receive grace. They're in need of grace, of somebody being gracious to them. And when I lead with grace and follow with justice, everybody receives that better. So when you do a work evaluation, you can say, you know, you're good at this. You're really good at this. And you're really, really good at this. Now you can improve in this. <laughs> what about when you're going back to your example with your wife and, and communicating <laughs> with your with your spouse? Gosh, honey, you're really good at this. You're really good at that. But you, uh, you get a broom over here. Um, this is a side. This is a sidebar <laughs> thing. But let me honestly. Uh, There's this guy that uh, worked at a secular university in the Northwest, and and he was able to predict if a couple would stay married in 15 minutes, and uh, it was a series of questions and listening to their conversation. And the, the factor was a positive regard for your spouse. If you had a positive regard, meaning knowing that your spouse was a sinner, that 
did things wrong and hurt you and I think you right. was it you that said we're all sinners yeah, that's all, your default well, uh, actually Paul said it in, in Romans 3 but okay. uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a truth that we you all get the are, credit for we are all sinners and but the this positive regard is when my wa- spouse acts this way that's not her at her best because I know my spouse is a good person that positive regard and when you're being gracious, when you have positive regard for your people that you lead, when when they do something that needs to be corrected, that's not their norm. Their norm is they do good. Mm-hmm. They're a good person who did something bad. That positive regard is a way of grace. It's a gracious way to enter into a correction. That's where I – those kind are the kinds of ways where I've seen you be gracious. You, you have emotional intelligence. So Thank that's, you. That's why I'm saying it that way. And I think this is a good segue into – and we'll, we'll we'll set it up with the story that occurred when you gave your sermon that I, I listened to. Um, and it was about using intentional language. So the story is this. You and I are in this business group called Vistage, and I've been tinkering with social media and uh, applied it to myself and my business. And I gave a 15-minute or 20-minute talk to the group about social media and its uses. And I gave everybody an idea about how they could be using social media. And in that, as I was thinking about you, I remember and you, you use this in your sermon or you opened your sermon with it. I sent you a text one afternoon and I think it was, I have a question about Jesus, something like that. And you said, okay, shoot. I hope I have an answer for you. And I asked, was he a carpenter? Now, I, I asked you that because I Googled it, is Jesus a carpenter? And I got conflicting things that came up in the searches, which I thought was interesting because I've always known that Jesus was, or I believed for whatever reasons that Jesus was a carpenter. But Google had a, go ahead, you have a, you pulled out the text, you still have it. So it was August of last year. And I said, Kevin, it's Hayam, I have a question about Jesus. Now, in the sermon, you you talked about how you received that first part of the text. Can you kind of revisit what you were, what you felt when I first sent you that? I, uh, I, I take my faith very seriously. I've given my life to the church. And one of the things I love about the Vistage group is it's not a faith group, but faith, when people in the group bring faith to the table, it's accepted in that regard. It's not rejected, and it's not it's part of who you are as a person, so we just receive it in that spirit, and it's wonderful. So I can be me in that group, but I am not preaching all the time, and I'm not uh, – my agenda is not to get everybody to come to my church or to, to believe like I believe, although I believe what I believe is working for me and is blessing my life, and so – I'm not. I'm always looking for the chance to share it, if it's wanted, not if it's uh, uh, resisted. Or I, I just don't want to push it down people's throats. And I would add to that: you make it relevant. Like if you're ever saying anything to me about faith, spirituality, you you lay it in a context of Judaism. Mm-hmm. And I don't ask you to do that. I've never asked you to do that. But you always do that. And it feels to me like it's out of respect because of yes. what you're saying. You don't want to impose it, but you do want to share what you know. And I respect Judaism. 
So, I mean, that's one of the benefits of the William and Mary educational experience is I, I, I got to understand why people believe what they believe, why a Buddhist is a Buddhist and what that's when you were studying the religions yeah, of the, the world, major world religions. Mm-hmm. And I, instead of just saying they're weird, it's like, Oh, that's why they believe that. And, uh, and so I respect the major world religions. That's there's truth in all of them. And I've come to be a Christian because of the truth that I believe is, uh, transcends or, or is a notch or two more, uh, more truth that I find more viable for a couple of the big questions of life. So, so your Jewish buddy sends you a text asking about Jesus and you, I'm receiving it. You had some thoughts around it. Oh my gosh. What do I do with this? How deep, how strong, what do I blow it off? Do I, uh, you know, and instead I wanted to be even keeled. So what's interesting is I didn't think about any of that when I sent you the text because I had a specific reason. I'll share it in a minute about why I was sending it to you. But then when I heard you talk about it after the fact in your sermon, which is online, there was a gravity that I felt like, oh crap, I maybe was, I don't want to say negligent with our relationship, but I might have not have been as careful as I should have been, which I've never told you that, but I'm telling you that now. But I thought that that was interesting. It made me aware of, you know what, my actions are probably heavier than I think they are. Even something simple as a text coming where, coming your way where there was no harm no foul it was like it was all pure and so it was you were just being you and i was just being me mm-hmm. and we had our own thoughts inside of our head and we didn't know what the other person was thinking so true that was very interesting. Yeah. that that was a yeah. interesting takeaway for me but yeah. you know as as the story continues you told me you gave me a couple of passages and said yes jesus was a carpenter and i that's what the the confirmation that i was looking for because my idea around you and social media was to start a website called jesuswasacarpenter.com, which I bought the domain. If you're interested in it, you can have it still. And to uh, export all of the stuff, a lot of what we're talking about and everything else that's inside you onto this website for people to find it uh, using social media. Now, your church, canyonridgechurch.com, is in... Canyonridge.org. Sorry, canyonridge.org. Yeah. I, I recommend people check it out because there's so much content. You guys are doing incredible things already on social media. My idea was specific to you because, as I continue to say it, I view you as a builder. You always build people up. You've built a 40-acre beautiful campus in the in the hells, what do you call it, the gates of hell, Las Vegas. You have 6,600, 6,800 people weekly coming to uh, experience you and the church and your work because they find value in it. I don't think that they're just coming out of obligation or by right. accident, but... That's the setup to the story um, that was in our Vistage meeting, and then you you opened with that story in your sermon, and the sermon, I watched the whole thing. It's online. Like I said, you can go on and, and hear all of your sermons and uh, all the other content that your church puts out, but the theme of that, well, I think it was a series, and you can elaborate on this, was I'll Go With You, and it's around the relationships of the family, and that first one in the I'll Go With You series was... Uh, using intentional language. And there were some specific examples that you used. Uh, like I received it as a father and as a husband and using intentional language in my, in my home with my kids, with my wife, like uh, I'll go with you is one of the, one of the phrases. I'm proud of you. I forgive you. So I just want to get your thoughts around that a little bit more, the use of intentional language and being in just intentional uh, in general in life. 
not just in business, but in family. But then also, how do you reconcile? Is it is it just using intentional language? What what about the actions? Um, actions speak louder than words. Always have, always will. And and the reason I say that is it's true. And most of us have experienced life seeing that. And. <laughs> How many of us are still waiting for a parent or a friend or a coach or a coworker to say something where we are looking, what do they really think of me? What do they really think of that project I just did? What do they really think? I don't know because they don't say something. And uh, I am a strong encourager of saying, of not assuming that people know what you think. I'm, and, and in marriage relationships, the old joke I told my wife, you know, we, we, this couple were sitting on the front porch, been married 50 years, celebrated their anniversary. And the wife looks over at her husband and says, honey, do you love me? Uh, I, 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 I don't hear you say that you love me. And the husband goes, honey, I told you 50 years ago I loved you. And if I change my mind, I'll let you know. It's that kind <laughs> of absence of words that is absurd. And how many kids are wondering if they have the approval of their father, how many, uh, because they can get the wrath of their father or the discipline of their father or the correction, but do they get the approval mm -hmm. of same thing for a mom? Because a mom feels so, uh, responsible for keeping kids clean and helping them do their homework and being prepared and all the tasks of the house, but for the conversation of the joy that a mom feels for her kids and, how important it is to add the intentional conversation. And that series was about some words like, I'm proud of you. Uh, when and how do you say that in a way that's legit? I mean, we have a culture that gives too many trophies away and we water down the words. But when a parent says to their kids at the right time for the right reason, I'm proud of you, powerful things. Kids will remember those words for a long time. And uh, what about I, I forgive you? Because in that sermon, you specifically said, I forgive you. And what I wrestle with with that is I feel like it's uh, indulgent. Like what? I say to my wife, one. you know what? It's a I very forgive tough you. One. It's a very tough one. <laughs> did she ask for my Like That's where I go with it. I didn't ask for your forgiveness. Exactly. What did I do wrong? Yeah. I, honey, I forgive you. What did I do? You know, in, in, unless there is a, uh, it needs to be, context is everything. And so when you say the, the right thing at the wrong time, it's not helpful. So when you say the right thing at the right time and the, I forgive you, uh, for me, the way I would use it is at the last sentence of the preamble and the preamble would go like this. You know, the other day there was this incident where you said something and I don't believe you meant it the way it fell on me, but the way it fell on me was this, and this is how I heard it. And that really hurt. And I know that's not what you believe overall. And I just, I just wanted to tell you, so I'm going to bring it out in the open. It's not going to simmer. It's not going to be something I hold on to in a grudge and erupt and tell you in an anger voice later. I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't believe you really meant it that way. And, uh, I just want to let you know, I forgive you. And, uh, oh, I didn't mean it that way. And you're right. And so that's so good. So that forgiveness cycle occurred because you had intentional, you had an intentional conversation. But why do I up. need to voice that forgiveness if I'm just going to let it go anyway? 
There are sometimes I, I, celebrate recovery is a place where a lot of people in our church go to get over hurts, habits, hangups, or their addictions. And celebrate recovery, yeah, celebrate recovery, and AA and GA and NA and all the A's as they go through the twelve steps. One of the one of the steps is for me to make amends and to go to the person. And unless it wouldn't be helpful, <laughs> basically, they kind of had this caveat ending phrase because there are times I go to the person and they hurt me worse than mm-hmm. before I went to them. And so it doesn't make sense to necessarily ask for forgiveness or but when it the context is right, uh, I forgive you or will you forgive me? Either one of those sentences are intentional sentences. And then what does that do for the, the person? Um, when you choose not to forgive, it's you. I heard this line a long time ago. It's like you drinking poison, hoping the other person dies. And it's really something that hurts you if you choose not to forgive. Unforgiveness makes you bitter instead of better. And to get the bitterness out of your heart by choosing to forgive, and it's a choice, mm-hmm. then you set yourself free. And instead of you walking around as an angry, bitter person. Now you're saying get the forgiveness out of your heart, which to me sounds kind of the unforgiveness out of your heart, which to me sounds like it's like a fluffy kind of maybe spiritual thing, but there's, there's benefits to the physiology to get unforgiveness out of your, or process it or whatever you want to call it. Bitterness is a, uh, it's a cancer. It's an emotional cancer that does have physiological side effects. Uh, It really does. And anxiety and and stress and other ways versus the forgiveness of the release of forgiveness, the freedom of it. Um, it, it, it sets you free, even if they don't receive it well. And, and for example, when you, I, I call it the Walmart uh, test. And if you go to Walmart and you see this person in the aisle, in the same aisle at Walmart, do you walk toward them or walk away from them? And the unresolved conflict that you see somebody that you don't want to see it's oh no i gotta turn away that just turns up all kinds of negative junk in somebody's heart okay you're you're prison to it versus i choose to forgive now they may not reconcile with me but i choose to forgive you're letting it go i'm regardless so when i see them hey how you doing it's good to see you guys and then when you encounter them or even it's not just a physical encounter like i've had this where I'm trying to fall asleep and all of a sudden I start thinking about that guy that screwed me out of the commission mm-hmm. and I, it, it, I physically can't sleep. I can't, not just can't sleep, but I mean, my mind is racing, my body's reacting to it in a negative way. And I really have to just, I haven't forgiven this person clearly because it, it happens from time to time, but I have to just cast it away. Mm-hmm. There's two things. Justice would say you try to get your commission. And you do all the legal ways to do it, all the right ways, all the ethical, professional ways. You don't go Mm -hmm. under board or around the corner. You do it right. And if you do all the things right and you still don't get a commission, then you have a choice. Mm -hmm. Do you sue them and and spend a bunch of money and pursue them or do you let it go? But there, so in the letting it go option, I feel like there's layers also. Yes. Uh, How long is it? I I tell people forgiveness is a scale of one to 10 instead of a one-time event. One is <laughs> one is saying the words, I forgive you, and 10, it's like you have a wound in your arm, mm-hmm. and when you touch it, it's, it's tender. But when you're healed and you touch it, it doesn't hurt, but you'll never forget the scar. You got mm-hmm. the scar. You got the story. It's, it's not forgive and forget. You will remember. But when you touch it, there's no energy there. But when a one is when it's raw and it hurts, 
and it's a fresh wound and it's one that you haven't, uh, haven't processed enough to heal. That's so forgiveness is a healing journey of one to 10. And now we're getting into a perfect segue into grief. Okay. I feel like that. Grief's the same, uh, because when it's raw, it hurts a lot. And as you process grief, it starts to heal and you'll never forget. You'll have a scar for the loss that you've had, but mm. when you touch it and it's not full of energy, then you know that you're on the healing side of it. Uh, everybody grieves, uh, and I think grief is sacred. Um, and sacred because it has something to do with love. And if you don't care when you lose something, you don't grieve. So grief, just for clarity, is not, I lost my mom, I'm grieving my mom. You it, can grieve many different things. Grief is the loss of anything of value. As much as you loved someone or something, if you lose it, it's going to hurt. So I just want to illustrate this a little further. I remember we were talking about someone that we know was moving from Las Vegas to Southern California, yeah. and you made that person aware of how their spouse would be feeling and the different things that the spouse would be grieving, uh, physically the house that they were in. Now there'll be a new house. There, there might be grief for the house. Uh, the primary care physician. That yeah. is now no longer the yeah. primary care physician. There'll be a new one. Mm -hmm. uh, the kids moving schools, they will grieve their friends. old school and their friends mm -hmm. and all the, I mean, it's, we don't think about, I don't think about that mm -hmm. when I think about grief. Yeah, I would say uh, I had a class when I was in seminary about the, the seasons of life and how good they are and how we all want them, but how much grief there is when you go from one to the other. So when you are single and you finally found your girl and you're getting married, that's a great thing. But now you're no longer single. And some guys get cold feet. Some girls get cold feet because, oh, I'm no longer going to be single. I'm off the market. Mm -hmm. Yes, you so you're are. you're grieving a part you of grieve. your identity, right. part of the activities that you would be right. doing, part of the... For a great reason. Because I love this person mm -hmm. and I'm going to get married. So I'm grieving my past, no longer being the way I used to be. You're single. I mean, you're newly married. Boy, it's great. We love each other. We have each other 24-7. Are we going to have kids? When you have your first kid, you're grieving how much fun it was to be just newly married with no kids because that was fun, mm -hmm. even though you love your kid. you know. And then you go from one to two, and then you go from two to three, and you grieve how much easier it is to only have two. And I told that to you. Yeah, and when you got your, three. <laughs> you your third child of how hard it is to have three. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Great joy. And you're grieving how hard it is mm -hmm. because in the old days, you just you just used to be you and your wife and you could do this or do that. And now you can't because you get all this responsibility, which is a great thing um, when your kids grow up and go to school and the last one gets on the school bus or is dropped off and you're going, oh, my goodness, my kids are all in school. Yay, my kids are all in school. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. They're all yeah. in school. Uh, when they become teenagers, when they start to drive, every transition uh, has a grief. And because you're leaving something behind that you treasured or you valued, and it's not going to be the same. Uh, when they go off to college or they, go, they leave the house and go to military or wherever, that's another grief. It's another transition. And you, gr and you keep going when they get married and you're no longer the man in your daughter's life and mm. your, your wife is no longer the girl in their son's life. You know, that's a grief because there's this new person that now has a priority place. It's great. And there's a lot of grief going around grief and then your grandkids and then retirement. 
and you lose your identity if you don't have a title. I mean, all of these great next seasons of life have a grief in it. And I didn't realize that at all when I was 22, 23, newly in seminary. But when I heard this guy talk mm-hmm. about it, it helped me as a pastor to understand why people go through the seasons they do and how they grieve as they go from one to another. Then you throw in grief as a normal cycle when you lose a loved one. And you can lose a 90-year-old grandmother, and that's still one kind of grief. You can lose a 60-year-old father. You can lose a 40-year-old brother. You can lose a 20-year-old son. You can lose a 5-year-old grandson. And each one of those griefs has a different journey. But there's a similarity of shock, anger, denial, guilt, bargaining. And those are the stages of grief. Those are the stages of grief. But the context of Mm -hmm. grief depends upon how deep and how long you will grieve. The, The general rule is the deeper you love, the deeper the loss, the longer it takes to heal. Mm-hmm. And then this is where I come in with my perspective. It's called good grief because people that don't care about anything are shallow people. People that care deeply are going to hurt deeply, and that's good. So when they have a cry over the grief, that's a good cry, as opposed to nobody's crying because nobody cares. The tragedies of life are really when nobody cares. When, Let me- when people care deeply, that's good. Let me tell you about my good cry that I had after you had given us this definition of a good cry. So we were in our Vistage group, and one of the the folks shared that he had lost someone. And um, we talked about it, and you gave some perspectives, not just around the good cry, which we'll talk about, but also um, like is it once a month, schedule a lunch with your friends? Oh, uh, what I tell people who are grieving uh, like today the funeral I did today to tell the guy to find four friends that he can go to lunch with, that he would want to go to lunch with schedule one of them every week. And so you have, and say over the next three months, what if we go to lunch once a month? And so you schedule out 12 lunches. And so every week you have a lunch and you let your friends be your friends. So 12 lunches once a week. So me as the griever, Uh let's say I'm saying every Thursday, Uh I will go to lunch with one of my four friends Uh over the course of three Three weeks. They they take you out to lunch three times, or you so, take them to lunch three times. So each one of them is only hearing my sob story three once times. A, once a month. Mm-hmm. Once a month. Mm-hmm. But you, but for 12 lunches, somebody that cares about you is letting you talk. And this this was interesting because one of the things you said, is, I don't want to burden anybody with my grief, right. and uh, they don't want to hear this anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do. They're your friends, and they want to do something for you. They don't and know what. They don't know what. And just doing this and scheduling out out in advance, there will be lunches that are great lunches and wonderful and uplifting. And then there could be a lunch where the griever is crying the entire time, right. and your friends really don't care if you're, crying you know, at top of the world yeah. or or crying yeah. sobbing. They just want to be there for you, and this is how they can be there for you. Right. And it's uh, to me, it's an organic uh, grief counseling session. That you can pay twenty bucks a Panera Bread, or you can pay one hundred twenty-five and go to a real grief counselor. It just makes sense to let your friends be your friends. So back to the the Vistage uh, discussion. Here's a person I don't know the I didn't know the person that he had lost, but I had experienced some grief with him. And in the discussion and hearing about the the friends and scheduling that, and also this new concept that you taught me about a good cry, mm-hmm. and that was a Wednesday. You we meet on Wednesdays. 
The next day, Thursday morning, I remember I left the house. I was driving on the 215 Beltway. I was somewhere between Tropicana and Durango. I was driving south. And all of a sudden, the memory of my mom washed over me. And I just, it was probably between, I don't know, Tropicana and Russell and and Durango. I just cried hysterically for, what is that, a 45-second drive or a minute and a half. And I remember this is a good cry and just let it happen. Don't hold it back. But it was it was two things were interesting. One, I gave myself permission to have the good cry instead of the, you know, resist it, wipe your face off, you know, you're about to meet people. Just <laughs> I just let it out. Um, but the other thing was how, you know, talking with somebody else about their loss, completely unrelated to mine, years after mine, brought this brought this on. Um grief we how do I say this? It's there. Do we pay attention to it or not? Do we ignore it? And part of denial is that I'll get to it later and I'm done with whatever I needed to do. And so my, I've, I've grieved that and I'm over it. But the wound is still there and eventually it's going to say hello if we let it. When you go to a friend and you identify with their grieving, all of a sudden your leftover undealt with grief has permission to say, remember me? And it's, <laughs> it's very common for the grief, the unfinished grief in you to find a voice because you were compassionate with somebody else when they needed grief. It's really cool how it works. Good cool, huh? Good for you. Uh, let's talk about the one of the best business lessons I've ever learned. I learned from Pastor Kevin Oder. And it's this concept of Joe's six-pack. Hmm. One of the best things you've ever learned. What did you learn? So when you described Joe Sixpack, you talked about the early days of Canyon Ridge. Yeah. And when you guys were thinking about what kind of church you wanted to be, and I uh-huh. hope that you pick, pick this up because you tell it better than I do, but uh-huh. here was my my takeaway from from the Joe, Joe Sixpack story. You didn't want to be just another church that goes after the low-hanging fruit, the faithful that are going to come no matter what. You wanted right. to go after the hardest person to get. Right. which you describe, the persona that you describe is Joe Sixpack. It's the guy that's, instead of going to church on Sunday, he's going to grab the six-pack and go sit on the couch and watch football or whatever sport because that's his religion. But if you can create something that was attractive to that person, you don't just get that person. You get that person and his wife and his kids and grandma and grandpa on both sides. Yep. How'd I do? That, you, that's amazing that you remembered it that precisely. But the, uh, the churches can uh, fall into the easy category of just going after other people's sheep. And there can be this comp- competition between churches about trying to st- – our church has the best music or our church has the best speaker or our church has the best facility or whatever – and the best youth pastor. The best locks and bagels. Yeah, and the best coffee or whatever. <laughs> and we draw people because we got the best. And then the, we create this consumer uh, mentality of, I'll go to the best church. And that isn't exactly what the New Testament was about and not exactly about what a relationship with God is about. But churches fall into that trap. We did not uh, – I love Mike Bro, the founding pastor we had. He, he had a phrase. He said, we didn't come to Vegas to reshuffle the deck. And great. That's Vegas. a that's a good one. It's a great Vegas term, and we came to go after people who weren't going to church, the unchurched, 
not those that were looking for a church, not those that were already in church, but the unchurched. And the epitome of that was Joe Sixpack, the guy that's sitting at home drinking beer, watching football, and the last thought in his mind is to ever go to a church. What if we could get him? And so we did design the atmosphere and our approach in such a way that there was a maleness to it. Uh, when the speakers speak, we speak male language, male terms, not overly and not grossly. And not to be a chauvinist. Not to be a chauvinist, but to be a, a guy, to not be ashamed a of being a guy. So using sports analogies, which was natural for me because I played football in college and I'm a sports freak. I love ESPN. It's organic to me. So I'm not putting on a front when I use sports stuff. But there are a whole lot of guys out there like me who enjoy sports and they watch sports center and they get all the sports analogies of what it's like to live life. Uh, uh, for example, uh, an analogy of marriage is the role the husband should play on the team as the captain of the team who often in baseball is the catcher who bats two thirty and is not, not an all-star. But Barry Bonds is in right field, who is an all-star. And your team's not going to win unless Barry Bonds is playing great. And so the catcher's job is to create the atmosphere so Barry is playing great. Who's the captain of the team? The, the leader who mm. creates the atmosphere for the all-star to play great. So who's in charge of your house? Who's going to take responsibility for your home team winning? In my home team, you know who the all-star is? My wife. Mm -hmm. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And my wife is exceptional. And when she's on top of her game, our team wins. My job as a as captain of the team is not to be the king of the house that rules the house that tells everybody what to do. And my job is to create an atmosphere where my team wins. And I want my all-star to play great. What does she need to play great? How can I support her, encourage her, cheer her on, create an atmosphere so she's at her best? Because she wants to be at her best. How can I help her do that? And when mm -hmm. our team wins... Does anybody care who the captain is? Nope. What everybody cares about that our team went. So I can explain marriage mm -hmm. through the terms of baseball to some guy who gets it. And the wife may not totally get it, but what she thinks she heard is her husband is going to help her win. And she's good with that. So she's good with the message, even though she may not fully identify with the illustration. But the guy gets the illustration and and we help him be a better man and and be a better dad, and uh, I love I love the ability to do that by talking natural sports talk to a culture uh, that still, for the most part, is very active in sports. And uh, and and there's other things from it doesn't just have to be sports, but it's okay for a guy to be a guy, and uh, for us to talk to men in a way. That is not sissified. One of the things that hmm. is a rap and one of the things that bugs the crap out of me. Uh, can I say crap? Uh, bugs. You could actually say whatever you want. Bugs Kevin. the daylights out of me is the sissification of faith. It's like moms take their kids to church. Who says? I grew up in a house where my dad was the man and he was the man at church. And my brother and I gave ourselves to being the man. What if we could have men lead their families in such a way that they take their wife and their kids to church instead of the man's the one at home and the wife takes the kids? Uh, what a difference that makes in the family dynamic when the man is engaged in the spiritual life of the family, that a man sings, a man serves, 
a man reads the Bible, that a man engages spiritual life in the home as opposed to he's on the sidelines and then leaves it up to the wife. Uh, it is the right thing in my view to go after a man because if you get him, uh, you get a captain of the team that that's going to win. So the first time I heard you talk about this, I took business lessons out of it too. Like you, I mean, you, you hear it all the time. How do you create an atmosphere for a players? Um, okay. Don't go after the low hanging fruit, go after the ungettable because yeah. if you can, if you can create an environment as the leader of your organization, where you're getting the a player, you're getting the a client, you've created an environment for those types of players and that those types of clients. When I, heard you just now say it, I had a different takeaway, had nothing to do with business or my company or A players or A clients. It was how I could be better, a better captain at home with the stars of the household. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. two takeaways in, in one concept, Joe Six. But it's in the same package it's, uh, yeah, it's, of using sports analogies to illustrate biblical truth. And that, uh, that helps guys connect with spirituality in a way that goes, I can do that. And uh, that's been fun. That, but it's also not to compete and make it a zero sum game. Right. And that applies equally to business. Mm -hmm. Like I could go call on all the listings of my competitors and hopefully mm -hmm. take some of, you know, a few pieces of everybody else's pie, or I can create a different category and go after the, what did you call it? The un unchurchable, uh, the unchurched, the equivalent of the unchurched, in my industry. And at mm -hmm. the same time at home, I don't need to compete for all of the attention and oxygen. It should be the opposite. So that's really interesting. Cool. Let's uh, end on this one thing. You talked about having a worthy life. How does somebody have a worthy life or, or another thing that you said once, I think it's related is to have a fulfilled soul and live a life of significance. <clears throat> There's a um, thing in our culture called the midlife crisis. And, and generally, I'm going to speak in very general terms, it is when you work really, 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 really hard to be successful and you are a success. And once you're a success, then there's this question that uh, starts to haunt your soul. Is this all there is? Because... You climbed the ladder, you worked the hours, you started the business, you got the degrees, you did whatever it took for you to climb your ladder of success, and now is that all there is? And one of three things generally happens to those guys or to those men and women is, one, they crash and burn because they get there and they go, this isn't all there is. And so they divorce their, fam their, their spouse, they buy the sports car, and they start using drugs, <laughs> end up in rehab. So that's the crash and burn scenario. Uh, another scenario is people don't know what else to do. So they keep doing what they've always done until they die. So they never retire. Mm. They stay at work and they just keep working hard that way because that's all they know to do. And, and whatever they, whatever good has happened has come because they've done it that way. So they keep doing it that way and they put their nose to the grindstone and they might not know anything else that they don't know anything else. So they go back to the familiar and that's all they do. Or they make this shift from sickness, from success to significance. And the significant part is taking everything that you, that got you where you are, including your resources, including your money, and saying, so what difference can I make with it? What impact can I make 
and when you start asking those questions, that's when the focus turns to people. Sometimes you develop people along the way and that helps you be successful. Sometimes people get that, but sometimes people are used along the way to get you to where you want to go. And when you start seeing the impact question, people get to get to be the bold bullseye of it. How can I impact people? And then that it be, you can take the skills of strategic planning and um, people and leadership development and focus it on a new strategy of impacting lives because in through nonprofits or through some other organizations or through an extension of a new expression of your business, you can start to uh, construct things that engage people and helping each other and making a difference that way. Um, the millennial culture wants to make a difference. That's one of their call words. And I want to work for a company that's going to help me make a difference. I believe that's true. And I believe that is the, that there's something about that in each one of us at the end of my life, in my last breath, that I make a difference. And uh, I believe a, a life of faith gives us an opportunity to do that. And I'm going to tell a, a quick Jesus story that is kind of familiar for. Uh, but he said the phrase, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust can come in and corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves cannot break in and steal. Well, what does that mean? Well, he, he taught in parables and he taught in illustrations. But the idea behind that is people are eternal. Stuff isn't. And we spend our entire hmm. life on stuff that we're going to leave behind. But when we see the value of people and realizing when I build into people and there's a ripple effect of, bl of blessing or training or encouraging this person who goes home and encourages their kid and goes home and the ripple effect of changing lives is the home run. It is the sweet spot of life. And as I can help people. Do you believe, sorry, that that's the sweet spot for everybody? Yeah, I really do. I've, I, I've not seen another answer uh, in the sense of somebody finding great impact. Ult ultimately, any great impact of a life comes to helping people in some way. Even if you take a scientist in a laboratory in some way, mm. discover something that's going to bless people or help people or be the answer to cancer or uh, help us get to the next planet or whatever. It's something that's going to help humankind in some way. And uh, there, there's a secret there. There's gold there. And the sooner we discover it, which I believe, and you may have heard me say this in our Vistage group, uh, when the CEO of a company sees himself as the pastor of the company, that's a very loaded term, but I'm saying it on purpose. A pastor looks at the people differently instead of just what can I get out of you is I want you to prosper. I want you to thrive. I want you to have a full life. And if I can set up our company in such a way to develop you, encourage you, stretch you, grow you, I'm going to have better employees. And if I have better employees, I'm going to have better results and I'll have a better company and people will want to come and work here. And I have a culture of improvement and engagement. And at the end of when I sell my company or when I die, I'm going to leave behind in the wake of me. Uh, maybe this, uh, he made people better. He lifted people up. He improved lives, whatever phrase can encapsulate impact mm -hmm. that would be meaningful to you. That's what I think happens. 
So I have like another hour's worth of questions <laughs> just on that, but maybe we'll save it for the Kevin Oder part two and you'll come back on. Uh, I, I've, yeah, I came in with takeaways. I'm leaving with even more takeaways, the six stages of, of a life, uh, the wounded warrior <laughs> thing. I have to go look that up. Uh, interesting, a pastor that talks about Peter Drucker and Jim Collins. You sound more like a, a management executive than a pastor. Uh, and, and obviously exploring this uh, living a life of significance and the, the, the parable with Jesus where the treasures in heaven is, is my interpretation of what you said is uh, really passing on whatever you can to other people. And those are, those are the treasures. Yes, it's people. Uh, the treasures that you store up in heaven are changed lives. If you want to say yeah. it that way, it's, it doesn't necessarily mean give every, give my Ferrari away and donate a million dollars. It's take everything I've learned and know and pass it on to somebody who wants to run with it, change their life and others pass them. The, 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 that's the stuff that lasts. Now, just to be clear, the Bible does say, including the Old Testament, enjoy the fruit of your labor. So working hard and taking the, who you are and, and getting the most out of it is a principle Jesus taught, but it's also a very strong Old Testament principle. So it's not a sin to enjoy the fruit of your labor, but realize that's not the goal. Too many people just make that the goal, and they miss the real goal. The real goal is impacting and storing up treasure in heaven. As you're doing that, for you to take a vacation or to buy a nice car is not a sin, but you realize the vacation home and the car are not eternal. Mm. And so it's too many people spend their one and only life on stuff that doesn't last instead of this stuff is fine and we can enjoy it. But the real goal is the stuff that lasts. So that's, that's the point. That's a great point. It's a wonderful point to end on Kevin. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom and, and your takeaways. Thank you everyone for listening. We would love to hear from you like with every show. Uh, go online, share your comments, share your takeaways from this episode. Make sure to leave a review, send in your comments. Kevin, thank you. I look forward to part two. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.